0: Hebrews chapter 13, where we deal with a number of miscellaneous reminders, duties that the apostle leaves with these Hebrews. Holding your finger at Hebrews 13, let's look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, just to see another example of how Paul preached and wrote his epistles. Most of you have received letters or postcards from me where I've got one or two main points that I want to express. And then at the end I'll have three, four, five, six, seven, eight, two, three, four, five word sentences. Blunt to the point. Like the apostle did. I take him as my pattern. You're reading through 1st Thessalonians and you see him dealing at length with subjects Such as their conversion, chapter 1. Such as His care for them, chapter 2. Such as the second coming of Christ, chapter 4. Then He gets to chapter 5. And we have little statements like this in verse 16. Rejoice evermore. He doesn't tell you what joy is. He doesn't elaborate on joy. He just says rejoice evermore. Verse 17. Pray without ceasing. I preached 11 messages on prayer and I could have preached more. But Paul didn't do that here. He just said, Pray without ceasing. He didn't tell you how to pray. He just said, Pray without ceasing. Verse 19. Quench not the Spirit. He doesn't tell you who the Spirit is. He doesn't tell you where the Spirit dwells. He doesn't tell you how you quench the Spirit. He just reminds you of a duty. Quench not the Spirit. He assumes that you know what He has taught about the Spirit and about quenching the Spirit so you are able to make sense of that abbreviated, bold statement. Verse 20, despise not prophesying. Verse 21, prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. Verse 22, abstain from all appearance of evil. Verse 26, greet all the brethren with an holy kiss. I mean, is there a context to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5? If you look at verse 19, what's the context? There really isn't one. It's a simple statement, quench not the Spirit. To determine how that statement should be understood, we must go to what the rest of the Bible has to teach about the Spirit and quenching the Spirit. We can go over to Ephesians chapter 4 and read about grieving the Holy Spirit of God. And there it's described what we can do to grieve this Holy Spirit of God. We can go to Isaiah 63 and see how the Israelites did that. Paul's pattern was to preach some main subjects at a given time, and then to close with miscellaneous duties, reminding the saints of their duties. Now look back at Hebrews chapter 13, and I hope that you can see that this chapter is according to Paul's pattern of writing. If you look at Romans You'll find in Romans chapter 12, miscellaneous duties given in short statements, not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, and so forth. And sometimes I'll write some of you, and at the end I'll say, love your wife, train your children, pray for me, love the brethren. Those are duties God's given you, and I hope that you know enough that with a three-word sentence, you get the message. And you're reminded, Paul did that. In verse 1, he used four words to teach, let brotherly love continue. Last Sunday morning, we looked at some of the things we've learned about love. We reminded ourselves that love is the greatest of the graces and duties that God requires of His children, to love one another. It is the greatest test of whether you are a child of God or not. It is the greatest test of whether you are submissive to the Word of God if you can love your brethren the way the Bible describes you doing that. Very difficult. It's the hardest challenge we have before us is to love one another properly because we're very selfish, proud, hateful beings by nature. And to overcome all of that and to love each other, esteeming others more important than ourselves, doing unto others as we would have done unto us, loving our neighbors as ourselves, Considering the things of others more important than our own things, that doesn't come by nature. That is a true test for our Christian character. Let brotherly love continue. In verse 2, the apostle reminded us of hospitality. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers. He doesn't tell you how to do it. He doesn't tell you when to do it. He just says don't be forgetful about it. These are reminders. And he goes on to give an illustration that ought to motivate you by saying some have entertained angels unawares by entertaining strangers. And that's quite a motive right there. Just in case you might ever entertain a stranger or an angel that appears as a stranger. But even if you don't entertain an angel unawares, if you entertain a stranger, Jesus Christ will one day when you stand at His right hand say, you visited me when I was in prison. You took me in when I didn't have a home. You fed me when I was hungry. And the righteous, the poor righteous, are going to say, when did we do any of that? And he'll remind them that when you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. And whether you ever entertain an angel or not, you'll entertain one of God's saints. And what's the difference when it comes to Almighty God, whether you took care of one of His angels or whether you took care of one of his saints, I dare say it's more important to take care of his saint. Because it's harder to do. If you knew it was an angel at your door, you'd be on your hands and knees before him. Can I give you a shoe shine? But your brethren, it's a little harder to do it. Because they're your peers. They're your equals by nature. Even though God says they are your superiors we're to esteem others more important than ourselves in the third verse the apostle goes on to remind them of that theme that I have tried to make a practical theme of this church we are a body we are a family and when anything happens to one member of that body or one member of that family the rest should feel it we should be a church of feelers Feelers, in quotation marks, is a description of melancholies. They do it naturally, but we should all be feelers. When one member has something good happen to them, we should be rejoicing with that member. When one member is suffering adversity, we should be suffering with them. The Bible tells us to suffer with those that suffer. It tells us to rejoice with those that are honored. It tells us to weep with those that weep. This should be like a family and I've done my best to try to create the environment of a family where we share with one another our griefs, our pains, our thanksgiving, and our blessings in the hope that we'll rejoice with one another and that we'll suffer with one another as the case may be. Look at how the apostle puts it in one verse. Remember them that are in bonds as bound with them. This body called the church is so tight that if one man's in prison, we're just as well as being there ourselves because we're one. When something happens to your wife, I mean, if you've got a marriage that it looks anything like what the Bible describes, you should feel like it's happening to you also or if it's happening to the husband because you're one. You're not, you're no longer twain as the Bible puts it. You're no longer two, but you're one. And in church, we are no longer 59, but we are one. And if one member is suffering or is in bonds, we should remember them and not forget them just because they're not here, just because they're not right before our faces. We should remember them. Because we are a body, we must constantly think about our body. Are we taking care of the feet today? Are we taking care of the arms today? Have we thought about the rest of the body? Remember them that are in bonds as bound with them and them which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. In one, in one verse, the apostle is able to summarize and remind us of this whole thought of what the church is for. Remember two messages entitled the purpose and the life of the church. Paul did it in one verse. I took two messages, but that's because Paul taught on it elsewhere. And it's, it's our duty to remember everything related to Hebrews 13.3. That we are to be of one mind because we're in one body. We're to be of one accord in this church. If we have brothers or sisters suffering, we should suffer with them and be considerate of their needs. And we should celebrate and rejoice with those that have cause for rejoicing. May God bless us to remember verses 1, 2, and 3. This morning, let's consider verses 4 and 5. I hope that when you come into this church, you come wanting to learn. This is a time of instruction and a time of learning. It is not a time to feel good as a priority. It is not a time to keep a social duty as a priority. It is a time to learn together. The preaching in the assembly is for learning. And as I prayed this morning, I hope that all of us realize as we come to the Word of God and as you come before your pastor, your thoughts stink. My thoughts stink. Our thoughts and our ways are infinitely separated from God's thoughts and God's ways. And we should be here this morning with the same type of spirit that you men hope your children sit in your family devotions to learn what the Word of God has for us. And I love chapters like Hebrews 13, Romans 12, 1 Thessalonians 5 because so much is covered in such a short space of time. With reminders of, oh yes, there's that duty I can't forget about. Oh yes, there's this one I need to consider carefully. And so we have it here in Hebrews 13, and I hope that we are all ready to learn what God has to teach us. Verse 4, marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled. But whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Now, if you were to go ahead and read the fifth verse, you'd find out it deals with covetousness and contentment. Verse 3 deals with the fact that a local church is one body. Verse 4 has no context. It is its own context. It deals with the subject of marriage and sex. And Paul just sticks it in, along with the rest of the other duties, assuming we know how to study our Bibles. He didn't elaborate on brotherly love when the New Testament spends more time on brotherly love than any other Christian grace. He just says it in four words, let brotherly love continue. The Bible has a lot to say about marriage, and he summarizes it in one verse. We know that we are to study a verse like this in the light of the rest of Scripture. But let me show you that reminder, because some of you are newer members in this congregation, and I want it fresh in your memories. Isaiah chapter 28. Isaiah chapter 28. Hebrews 13, 4 opens a subject. It reminds us of a subject, but it is our duty to go fill out, put the flesh on the skeleton of that subject from the rest of Scripture. Isaiah 28 and verse 9, and this is why I hope you're all here. Whom shall he teach knowledge? And whom shall he make to understand doctrine? Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breasts. I hope we don't have any babies here this morning, but that you are all here to learn knowledge and to understand doctrine. Verse 10, for precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little. That is how we learn doctrine and we increase in understanding and knowledge. Here a little, there a little, line upon line, precept upon precept. It is a precept from this place in Scripture, a precept from this this other place in Scripture, stacked one on top of each other to get the overall message of what God has to teach regarding any given subject. This is the way God's Word is to be studied. God tells us, I didn't learn this rule in any seminary. God's Word gave this rule on how to study the Scriptures. But let me remind you of what it says just three verses later in verse 13. But the word of the Lord was unto them precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little, that they might go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. How many people have we run into that didn't like the way we study the Bible? They don't like us running back and forth all over the Bible because they think that we're just picking out the verses that support our position. The Bible tells us to study it this way. It's too tedious. It's too boring. I'm not a very entertaining speaker. There's a little part of me, it's small and it's getting smaller every day, that wishes I was good at telling stories, anecdotes, jokes, illustrations, examples. it's a small part of me because I've heard so much of that and I've seen people sit there and grin and walk out saying what a great sermon but there's a great big part of me that realizes they don't get anything and that type of preaching is an absolute waste and if you can find me one sample of it in the New Testament I'll eat your Bible. It's not done. If that's what you call preaching, then preaching can be flushed. My preaching's gonna be boring. It's gonna be here a little, there a little, line upon line, line upon line, precept upon precept. But if you love the Word of God and you wanna increase in knowledge, we are going to cover the Word of God. I'll do the here there a little, and there a little digging, and I'll feed it to you. But you've gotta want it. If you don't want it, you'll come in here and you'll hate these assemblies. I thank God for the way he made his word. And he saved this poor, joking preacher. What would happen to me if I had to entertain you people with jokes and stories? Back to Hebrews chapter 13. Paul, dealing so quickly with the subject of marriage and sex, in verse 4, is not trying to be modest any more than he's trying to be modest by saying, let brotherly love continue. In verse 1, he's simply summarizing as he does at the end of most of his epistles by quickly reminding you of things you ought to know. Things he's already taught, things the other apostles had taught, and he wants to remind them of their duties. And when we look at those reminders at the end of an epistle, we can know those reminders must be there for a reason. We must have trouble in these particular areas. Or Paul wouldn't be reminding us because they're not expositions. They're simply reminders. If Paul starts off with brotherly love, we should understand from that that brotherly love must be important and it must be hard for us to practice it properly. If the Apostle Paul deals with whoremongers and adulterers, we must realize there must be a real temptation in this world to whoredom and to fornication. And there is. I find it interesting that in the midst of such a theological book, Paul can throw in a verse on sex. Hebrews thirteen four. I mean he's dealt twelve chapters with the ins and outs of the Old Testament religion, New Testament religion, how the priesthood of Christ compares, and boom, Hebrews thirteen four. How are we supposed to handle sex and how are we supposed to look at it? Paul, in one verse, can set forth the positive aspect of the sexual relationship in marriage and then set forth the negative aspects of trying to have a sexual relationship outside of marriage. Can you believe in one verse? In one sentence, Paul can say marriage is honorable in all in the bed and the file. That's positive. And I want to deal with it positively. Then the second half, but, this isn't very positive, but, whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. That's a strong statement, isn't it? Very brief, very concise, very pointed. But, whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. Positive and negative in one sentence. Only God could write a book like the Bible to remind us of our duty. The first point we want to get from this verse is in the first half. Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled. And that is that God created sexual pleasure. Genesis chapter 2 is where we want to go, first of all. Genesis chapter 2. Every good gift cometh down from above. Every good gift that you enjoy in this world, God created it. It came down from above. And sexual pleasure is one of the, if not the, greatest gift God has ever given to man. That's obvious to most everyone. Some of us like to eat. Some of us like to golf. Some of us like to work. Some of us like to play with computers. Some of us like to play pool. Some of you like to hunt. But most of you appreciate the fact that God created sexual pleasure. We may differ on the rest, but we don't differ much on this blessing. And when in the Garden of Eden, God didn't create a 30-06 for deer hunting, He didn't create a billiard table for playing pool. He created a woman. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, hunting was not enough. (laughs) But for Adam, there was not found in help meat for him. Animals didn't cut it. You hear this story about dog being man's best friend. (laughs) Come on. If a dog's your best friend, you need help. Uh, it's interesting, God said, I'll create and help." then he created animals. I mean, it's showing that there's something far beyond that that Adam needed, because God then states again, there was not found in help meat for him at the end of verse 20. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman, and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. God created sexual pleasure. And God created sexual pleasure before the fall of man. For those of you who've done much reading in the Puritans, if you read the Puritans, you'd wonder what side of the fall sex began on, the way they treat it. But God created sex before the fall. Marriage is honorable in all. And if you want to know what that word all is referring to, it's referring to what whoremongers and adulterers do. In bed. Generally. It's honorable. God didn't say marriage and the bed is sufferable in all. He didn't say it's allowable in all. He didn't say it's permissible in all. He didn't say it's bearable in all. He said it was honorable. Get that message. The Puritans were sick perverts. And I would tell stories about some of their sick perversions if it would not disgrace the preaching of the gospel this morning. But I'll deal with it when I deal with some myths on marriage. God created sexual pleasure and it's honorable. It is something to be enjoyed. It is one of the chief gifts God gave to men, if not the chiefest. Look at Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27. You know, there's two kinds of perverts in this world. There's perverts that will pervert the natural use of the woman, like Romans chapter 1. There's sodomites. Those are perverts. Then there are perverts that will pervert the natural use of the woman. I'm going to get to a text on that shortly. That pervert what God gave to man. And they don't use it in the way that He intended it to be used. Out of their Pharisee religion. Genesis 1, 27. So God created man... In His own image, in the image of God, created He Him. Male and female, created He them. The differences between the male and the female is created by God, was created by God. It was created before the fall. God created male and female. You know, men sometimes wonder, and I hope you've wondered, why... A woman's body is so absolutely attractive. Can you imagine Adam in the Garden of Eden? He looked at a lion. He looked at a bear. He looked at an elephant. He looked at a giraffe. But the neck of the giraffe didn't please him as much as the neck of Eve did. The nose of the elephant didn't please him as much as the nose of Eve did. The long legs of the stork didn't please him as much as the legs of Eve did. How was it that the woman was created so absolutely attractive to the man? Where did that come from? Is that desire and appreciation of the woman's physical body a result of sin? No way. God created the male and female and He didn't want her covered when He brought her to Adam. Because what He created was beautiful. And Adam knew it. And Adam took her to be his right away. And the two of them established the law that a man shall leave his father and his mother because a father and a mother sure don't satisfy like a wife is able to satisfy. They are both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. God makes the sexual differences between men and women. Look at Genesis chapter 29. The point I want to make right now is he made it before the fall. Sin has nothing to do with it. This is God's ideal gift to a man in paradise. When you've got a man in paradise, he doesn't create an amusement park. He creates a woman. Genesis chapter 29 and verse 17. Leah, the daughter of Laban, was tender-eyed. Jacob looked at them both. He looked at Leah. She was tender-eyed. But Rachel was beautiful and well-favored. There was a difference between Leah and Rachel. One was what we would today call well-endowed. She was well-favored. What made the difference? God did. Who made Rachel beautiful and well-favored? God did. God makes differences like that. God creates sexual differences between men and women God creates sexual differences between and among women and between and among men. God makes those differences because God said that the sexual relationship is honorable in all. If you were to read the Song of Solomon, which we'll not read this morning, especially chapters 7 and chapters 8, you'll find great emphasis placed on every aspect of the woman's body beginning with her feet and ankles all the way to the crown of her head. As Solomon describes this woman's body in the first nine verses of Song of Solomon, chapter 7, including her hips, breasts, nose, mouth, everything. He describes the beauty that God created in this woman. If you were to read chapter 8, you would find this woman describing her own body and being proud of it and comparing her body, well favored, with the body of her sister that was not so well favored. Very plain and realistic book. God makes those differences. God created sexual pleasure for the enjoyment of man and he did that before the fall. Never forget those words, the word honorable. Marriage is honorable in all. That word all there is standing for all forms of natural sexual expression that any whoremonger or adulterer might engage in. But marriage is the dividing point. In marriage, all of those natural forms of sexual expression are honorable, not bearable. Not required, but they're honorable. Something that is honored, like a parent, like God himself is to receive honor, is something that's to be esteemed highly something that is to be praised. And sexual expression in marriage is to be praised and to be honored because God designed it so before the fall of man. And there's nothing defiling, dirty, bad, wrong about it. It's the greatest of God's gifts to men. But, whoremongers and adulterers who may use the very same form of sexual expression but who use it outside the institution of marriage, will be judged. And that's a point that I'm going to get to in just a moment. But I want you to emphasize the fact that marriage is honorable in all. Look at Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. And in case that word all, I'm going to repeat myself again. The word all there stands for every form of natural sex sexual expression that would ever take place between whoremongers and adulterers because it's talking about the same activity. One is right, one is honorable, one is undefiled, one will bring God's judgment. It's talking about the very same thing because men do the very same thing with prostitutes that they do with their wives. And if you don't like it put that way, you've got a misunderstanding of the sexual relationship. They do the very same thing. One is just approved by God as being honorable, and one will be condemned. More on that in just a moment. But look at Colossians chapter 2. The reason Paul would say marriage is honorable in all is because in the early church, just as it has existed since the beginning of time, man's mind is perverse. Men take the name of Christ and become Christians. And they realize when the Word of God speaks against adultery and against fornication and even against the thoughts of those things, they overreact just as they do with alcoholic beverages. They look at drunkenness and they see an alcoholic. And so instead of dealing with the sin of alcoholism, they play games with the booze. Booze has never made anyone an alcoholic. Booze has never made anyone drunk drunkenness is a sin that comes from man's heart that perverts the proper use of a God-given thing. Men take the name of Christ. They realize they fought great temptation in the past with thoughts of fornication or deeds of fornication. And so they overreact. Sex is wrong. Sex is dirty. Christians ought not to engage in sex. You say, who thinks that way? How many priests have you seen of the Church of Rome with wives? How many nuns of the Church of Rome have you seen with husbands? What was the highest calling a man could have for the thousand years called the Dark Ages? He could be a monk. Shave his head and walk around with his hands folded saying prayers. What a holy man. He's a sick pervert. I wouldn't want to be in there, brethren. Unless I had my 357 magnum. I wouldn't want to be around 200 men that hadn't been with a woman in several years. I don't care how many prayers they were uttering; they're sick perverts. But do you know where that comes from? It comes from seeing in the Word of God that adultery is condemned, fornication is condemned, and overreacting, just as just as Christians do with alcohol, and so many other things. Here's the verse that deals with it. Paul deals with these. Pharisees that overreact. Verse 20 of Colossians chapter 2. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances? Touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using, after the commandments and doctrines of men, which things have indeed a show of wisdom in will-worship, and humility and neglecting of the body not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh couldn't be a better verse to compare with Hebrews 13 4 than Colossians 2 23 you will run into Christian authors or you're going to run into Christians that don't want to talk about sex sex is to be downplayed sex is a necessary evil of marriage Sex is for reproductive purposes only, not for pleasure. Most of our parents have uh, bought that last one, and most of the Puritans did also. And talk like that, yes, it shows indeed a show of wisdom in will worship. They're able to control their wills and deprive themselves. I mean, I've always admired priests and nuns who would go without marriage all their lives. I mean, they're perverted for doing it. They're in error, but I've admired them. That's more commitment than I see for most Christians who are unable to sacrifice things in their lives. Oh, indeed, it shows. It's a show. It's a public demonstration. I'm holy. I wouldn't defile myself in the sexual relationship. Well, that's perverse because God said it is honorable in all and undefiled. There's not a thing wrong with it. In fact, it's God's greatest gift to man before the fall in paradise, which things have indeed a show of wisdom and will worship and humility and neglecting of the body. There are religious sects, there are Christians, and there are Puritans, and there are Catholics who in their writing and in their teaching will teach us things that, yes, they neglect the body. They deny the body, and they appeal to a certain warped part of our minds that believe that the sacrifices God is looking for are pain and self-denial. You remember some prophets of Baal who cut themselves through denial, self-flagellation. You know, have you ever read about the Mexicans who go around beating themselves in the back until they bleed? They think they're making peace with God through neglecting their bodies. You know, fasting until they're sick and emaciated. There's a, there's a warped part in many of us who went to uh, extremes in the past. Sort of like that none of you were backbeaters, but we all had our own little hang-ups, or some of us did. Paul's warning against that right here in this verse, the neglecting of the body. Not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. When God has created something for the satisfying of the flesh, and it's honorable, we should be using it. We should be glorying in it. We should be thankful for it. It should be a, a, an, a thing that is emphasized before God. He said marriage is honorable in all. Any sexual expression in marriage is honorable. Not allowable, not bearable, honorable. It's a good thing. God created it. But there are those who trying to make a show will neglect their bodies and they'll deny the honorable things to the satisfying of their flesh. I wish to God that all the women in this congregation would read the Song of Solomon, read it with your husband if you need help interpreting it, and emulate the woman in the Song of Solomon. You want to talk about a virtuous woman? There's no lengthier passage in the entire Bible than the woman in the Song of Solomon which describes the marital relationship between Solomon and his bride. That woman loved the sexual relationship of marriage. She was sick for it. She's always saying throughout the book she was sick and charging all of her maidens and making them swear that they'll not interrupt her because it's too good. She's proud of the body God gave her. She speaks of it. She wants to take Solomon home to her mother's tent Or her mother can instruct her further. That is the virtuous woman. A virtuous woman who never talks, a woman who never talks about sex or who's afraid of sex or who thinks it's a necessary evil is not a virtuous woman. She's a messed up woman and she needs help and she's going to ruin a marriage and she's a curse to whoever married her. Because the sexual relationship is what God created that woman for. God didn't say He created the woman and brought her to Adam with a checkerboard. And when you look in the Bible and you see what God did create her for, then you read Paul saying marriage is honorable in all. You understand this is a thing that we ought to honor, put in its proper place and treat scripturally. It is very easy for us to overreact the wrong way against things like this. In our perverted minds. My, I mean, I can tell you, my wife and I, when we were first married, and I never had a problem thinking that sexual expression was not honorable. But even then, in the beginning years of our marriage, there were certain things I did or did not do, certain commitments we made to each other that were warped because I'd never been taught no one had ever had the courage, nor the kindness, nor the spirituality to ever teach me properly about sexual matters. Thank God I've been saved from some of those erroneous ideas that we had. Most Christian homes in recent generations have perverted the honor due the sexual relationship. All of you that came from God-fearing homes or most all of you, your parents, hardly said anything to you about the sexual relationship when it should have been exalted, honored, promoted, built up, glorified as one of the great gifts God gave to men and women. And those of us who came from God-fearing homes were left starving and there's a very obvious and natural consequence of parents not dealing with it openly realistically and promoting it as soon as those children hit puberty and their bodies tell them it ought to be glorified it is exciting it is honorable all of a sudden they realize mom and dad are so prudish so out of it and so ignorant they can't relate to me. I've been there. And almost everyone else I've talked to has been there. Paul wasn't so prudish. God wasn't so prudish. The Bible is filled with things that most... That, there are some things that, except for a couple of men in this room that I've shown recently, there are things in this Bible you don't even know are there. You can't raise a sexual subject I can't show from the Bible. The Bible's a very open book. It's too bad our parents weren't. Most of our homes have raised us with a warped attitude toward sex. It's hush-hush. Don't talk about it. It's to have babies. God didn't make sex to have babies. Any woman who's ever studied female anatomy knows that there are things God gave the female that have nothing to do with reproduction at all. That is so natural and so obvious that you have to be willfully ignorant to miss that fact. God did not create sexual pleasure for reproduction. When was the last time you saw dogs or horses or cows grinning in their pens? They do it by instinct. Human beings don't do it by instinct. They do it for pleasure. And God made that great difference. another point God created sexual pleasure and he created marriage for its place we saw that in Genesis chapter 2 when God created the woman God brought the woman to the man naked they weren't ashamed sin hadn't entered the world sin's messed up sex sex was better before the fall because there was absolutely no shame involved in it whatsoever absolutely open after the fall we've had to undo that through marital adjustment Adam and Eve didn't have any adjustment there was no shame there they didn't need two weeks in a honeymoon look at Proverbs chapter 5 Proverbs chapter 5 Adam said she shall be called woman therefore shall a man leave father and mother and cleave unto his wife that is marriage when you leave one family unit you start another family unit, you commit to that woman, you cleave to her, you are going to provide for her, you are going to love her, and you are going to limit your relationship sexually with her and no other. Proverbs 5 addresses this very same subject. Beginning at verse 15, "...Drink waters out of thine own cistern, and running waters out of thine own well." I remember when David... You're nine years old right now? He was six years old when we were reading through Proverbs chapter 5 and I read that verse. And I we had read through Proverbs many times, but we read through verse 15. And I said to David, I said, what does it mean to drink waters out of that own cistern? And he said, you only go to bed with your own wife. Couldn't believe it! That things like that had paid off reading over proverbs 5 enough times proverbs chapter 5 because that's the context that's what it means drink waters out of thine own cistern you don't go borrow waters from your neighbor's well and neither do you plan or ever lay with your neighbor's wife drink waters out of thine own cistern and running waters out of thine own well let thy fountains be dispersed abroad and rivers of waters in the streets let them be only thine own and not strangers with thee that's children that's children The waters there in verses 16 and 17 and the rivers being dispersed in the streets are your children, your progeny, your seed. But let them only be thine own and not strangers with thee. You don't want illegitimate children around the place from some stranger. You want it simply your own creation with your own wife. Verse 18, let thy fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of thy youth. Have lots of children, but rejoice be as the loving hind in pleasant row. Let her breasts satisfy thee at all times, and be thou ravished always with her love, always that of your wife. And then verse 20, And why wilt thou, my son, be ravished with a strange woman, and embrace the bosom of a stranger? For the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he pondereth all his goings. We often turn to Proverbs five twenty one as a verse to show that God sees and knows everything. And true, God sees and knows everything, but what is under consideration in Proverbs 5.21? By context. Sexual relations. If you're playing games in your mind, all thoughts are naked and open before the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. If you think you've hid something somewhere, some deed, God sees that. For the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and He pondereth all His goings. God is considering you men in your sexual relationships with your wives. I'm using plural because I use the plural noun men. You've only got one in this church. And God ponders that too. God is looking at how you treat your wife in that relationship. What thoughts you have, what ambitions you may have outside of that marriage, what deeds you may have perpetrated. God sees all that. And he ponders it, which ought to be a warning to all of us. We looked at the word ravish last Sunday, which when speaking of women means to rape them. It's to take by violent force. Verse 19 tells men to be ravished always with her love. It is a conscious effort to let your wife's love, and it's in a sexual context, take you by violent force. Let it carry you away. Be ecstatic over it. You say she ain't the most beautiful thing in the world. Oh, you always get that question. Well, let's think about it. You chose her, so we could end it right there. Second, God didn't have anything to say about that in verse 19. He said, let her satisfy you anyway, and be thou ravished always with her love. It is a conscious decision. God has said, this is the way it should be. This is what I must do. Therefore, I will do it. And you've got to do it. Why wilt thou, my son, be ravished with a strange woman? Why will you allow yourself to be carried away, taken violently by force, You know, falling in love and infatuated with so-and-so when it's a strange woman? And why will you embrace the bosom of a stranger? Stay away from her. Rejoice with your wife and her alone. God demands that we are satisfied and contented with our wives. I find verse 5 in its relationship to verse 4 of Hebrews 13. You don't need to turn back. Very coincidental. Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have. What's the number one thing the Bible addresses as the object of coveting by men? women, another man's wife be content with such things as you have, God demands that contentment all the difference in the world is made by marriage look at 2 Samuel chapter 11 2 Samuel chapter 11, marriage makes all the difference in the world, today marriage is considered something in a category with dinosaurs you know it's on it's way out It's extinct. You can go into it, flip out of it a year later, flip into another one, flip out of it. Who needs to get married? We live together. I love her. I treat her well. Who needs to get married? We live in a generation like that. Our great-grandparents couldn't have imagined the generation we live in. They were committed to marriage. They may have had their great shortcomings, and they did, but they were committed to marriage. I like 2 Samuel 11. You know what we have in verse 1. Let's get verse 2. It came to pass in an evening tide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house and from the roof he saw a woman washing herself and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. He wasn't content. He wasn't satisfied with his wives. He took another man's wife and we read that he took her He lay with her in verse 4. She conceived in verse 5. If you were to continue reading 2 Samuel chapter 11, you would come down to verse 27. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. What David did displeased the Lord in taking Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now Bathsheba has conceived. In chapter 12, Nathan tells David, and it happens, that the child dies. God kills the child to judge the parents for their wickedness. But then look at verses 24 and 25. As soon as the morning was over. And David comforted Bathsheba his wife and went in unto her and lay with her and she bare a son and he called his name Solomon and the Lord loved him. Now, is that a big difference? One child from the same couple. One child is killed by Almighty God. Why? It was the result of sexual a sexual relationship outside of marriage. Remember, he married her after she conceived. Then they have another child immediately after the death of the first one, but it's the result of a relationship within marriage. David had confessed his sin of murder and adultery. God immediately blessed that child, and that child was Solomon. What a difference marriage can make. One child killed, one child blessed is God's chosen favorite of all the wives that David had. Same woman, same man, same relationship, but the dividing point there was marriage the commitment of marriage. And he took care of Bathsheba. Bathsheba came to him when he was laying on his deathbed and said, Do you remember your promise to me? that Solomon will be king because Adonijah had taken the throne and he remembered it and he promised her that Solomon would be king. He took care of her because you know Solomon took care of his mother. Go read the fourth chapter of Proverbs. He said he was tender and only beloved in the sight of his mother. He still remembered the care she had given him as a child. All the difference in the world. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy chapter 5 don't raise your hands men but I know your wives know if you talk at all how many of you men have ever thought about polygamy? you say I've never thought about it well then you don't fall in line with Abraham, David, Jacob, Isaac and all the rest of the Old Testament saints polygamy sounds downright wonderful every man's dreamed of having a harem you say well it's got to be better than one Variety's the spice of life can you imagine Solomon with his IBM AT at home with a thousand women listed in a database? Call him up by height, call him up by hair color. Sounds wonderful. I'm trying to make a very strong point. I know you think that way, so I'm going to address it. You have thought that way. There's part of the man who thinks that way. How did God create in the beginning? How many women did he create for Adam? one does Malachi tell us any reason that he created one could he have created more in Malachi does God know he could have this is how much I believe the Bible if God created one and he could have created more and he said he created one for a purpose and he was the one that created sexual pleasure there is greater sexual pleasure with one woman than with a harem I flat out believe that. Because God is infinitely perfect in all His works. When He created one woman, you know what He said? It's good and very good. And you can daydream all you want. But you're wrong. And I would check that kind of daydreaming. Because it's not a thought that's God-honoring. I believe that the inventor of anything knows more about how to maximize its use than anyone else. And if God invented sex, then He knows how to maximize its pleasure. And He said one woman. And I believe that. That's enough for me right there. Now, if I stopped for one second and left the Word of God and started thinking, 20 sounds better than one, a 1,000 sounds better than 20. But if God said one, there must be some advantages to one that my flesh doesn't see. And if we're realistic, we can see some reasons as to why one is better. You ever seen fighting cats? You ever heard the noise they make? Can you imagine Solomon? That man went to... You can, you can know he went to his grave with gray hair. But the Bible teaches one. Marriage is the great dividing difference between a sexual relationship, yes, that might be pleasurable for the short run, that God condemns and a sexual relationship that God honors. I want you to see another way of looking at it in the Bible. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 21. Deuteronomy 5, 21. Neither shalt thou desire thy neighbor's wife, Neither shalt thou covet thy neighbor's house, his field, his man's servant, his maid servant, his ox, ass, or anything that is thy neighbor's. I want you to get the word desire. Neither shalt thou desire thy neighbor's wife. A man should not look at his neighbor and desire his wife. Because you've already got your own. And you can't have his. So don't desire it. That's a sin. Because it is a sin desiring something God hasn't given you. And it's a sin that will lead... It's a, it's a mental sin that will lead to the actual sin. But I want you to notice the word desire. Do not desire your neighbor's wife. Now look at chapter 21. The point I'm making is that marriage makes the big difference. Marriage makes the big difference in a sexual relationship. Let's get verse 10, Deuteronomy 21 verse 10. When thou goest forth to war against thine enemies, and the Lord thy God hath delivered them into thine hands, and thou hast taken them captive, and seest among the captives a beautiful woman, and hast a desire unto her, that thou wouldest have her to thy wife, then thou shalt bring her home to thine house. And it goes on to describe other things God wanted them to do, but the point is this. You could be walking through the ruins of this city where all the men have been killed and see some beautiful woman and grab her and take her home. And it says you might have a desire to her. Now in chapter 5 it said, thou shalt not desire thy neighbor's wife. In chapter 21 it's saying if you have a desire for her, take her home. And what kind of desire is under consideration in twenty-one eleven? To learn a foreign language? Because she could speak in another tongue? She was beautiful. So you took her home. Here's all the difference in the world, the institution of marriage. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, it's your neighbor's wife, a married woman. In Deuteronomy 21, it's either a virgin or a widow. Makes all the difference in the world. A a single man may desire a beautiful single woman as long as that desire is kept within the thoughts and context of marriage. If that statement were not true, we wouldn't ever get married. Desire is what drives men to marry women. But it's within the context of marriage. God didn't word the Scriptures uncarefully. Look at uh, verse 11. Deuteronomy twenty-one eleven. You see... There is visual sight of a beautiful woman. Among the captives, a beautiful woman. And hast a desire under her. you want her. That thou wouldest have her to thy wife. Notice the limitation. You would only desire her in the context of marriage. A single man looking at a single woman thinking of a single act of fornication is sin. But a single man looking at a single woman and thinking of marrying her and marrying her for the purpose of sexual pleasure is God-honoring. It's honorable in all. Marriage is honorable in all. Go for it, young man. But don't you look at another man's wife or you violate Deuteronomy 5. And don't you look at a single woman if you're married, man, or you violate Job 31.1. Job said, I've made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid, single woman? You see how marriage marriage makes all the difference in the world. God created, God invented, God designed the sexual relationship. Don't you ever forget it. Every aspect of the male anatomy, the female anatomy, the pleasure it gives, the sensations, all of it. God created it. God created it, if God created it, I'm going to be, quote, foolish unquote, enough to believe that he knows how to maximize it. And that if we'll follow God's plan for things by limiting it to marriage, we'll we'll achieve the greatest fulfillment and pleasure that could ever be achieved through the sexual relationship. Our society doesn't think that way any longer, though. They think variety is the spice of life and they don't think of that in terms of polygamy. See, polygamy is a whole lot better than going around and shacking up. When you just go out and have affairs as they're called or commit fornication or you play the whore with different girls and different women, you are not caring for them like they did in polygamy. David may have had 20 wives, but believe me, he cared for all 20 of them. They were provided for. They weren't just They just didn't get pregnant and he threw them away and left them. He took care of them. We read about the sons of the different wives he had. That's a big difference. Polygamy is not God's ideal. God allowed it. But our concept today of sexual relationships outside of marriage to either enjoy sowing your wild oats as a teenager or to spice up your marriage. With adultery. There are books today written by psychologists and social workers on spicing up your marriage by recommending wife swapping. Add some variety to your marriage. Here's the point I'm trying to make. Whenever we read something that's promoted by the world as saying this will make your marriage better, this will enhance your sexual relationship, if it counters God's Word, It must be wrong because God invented sex. God designed sex. I'm sure he knows best how to maximize it. And we know that he does. If you've ever read any of the confessions of prostitutes who are engaged in sex outside of marriage, read about how much they enjoy it. Read about how emotionally damaging it is to them. And believe me, no woman is going to respond like a woman who's taken care of well in a marriage relationship where she knows she has the security of a husband who loves her. God is infinitely wise. Amen. Look at Matthew 19 and verse 5. Matthew chapter 19. Jesus here is preaching to the, speaking to the Pharisees about marriage since they have tried to tempt Him with some questions. He says in verse 5, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. In the sexual relationship of marriage, two do become one flesh. Two bodies do become one. Adam said that in Genesis chapter 2. God quotes it again. in Jesus quoted it in Matthew chapter 19. It's quoted in Mark and Luke. And it's quoted in Ephesians chapter 5. I mean, that statement's quoted a number of times. But I want you to see it quoted in 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6. Uh, Moving to a third point. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Beginning at verse 15. Know ye not that that your bodies are the members of Christ. 1 Corinthians 6.15. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of an harlot? God forbid. What? Know ye not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? For two, saith he, shall be one flesh. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Flee fornication! Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. Verse 16 is what I want to emphasize. What? Know ye not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body, for two, saith he, shall be one flesh. I've read more paragraphs and more pages on what two shall be one flesh means in Genesis chapter 2 than than could choke a horse. Do you know what it means? Whatever it means, you can do it with an harlot. There are those Christians who in their show of wisdom and will worship and humility and neglecting of the body deny marriage. I mean, they're the obvious. They're obviously in error. Priests declare vows of celibacy, and so do nuns. That's one error. The other error is to try to distort the purpose for the sexual relationship in marriage. It's for reproduction. It's simply to have children. Another one is, it's a spiritual union. There's nothing spiritual about it. There's nothing spiritual at all about the sexual relationship. It is an entirely physical and practical relationship, physical, between a man and his wife. The man and his wife are to have a spiritual relationship as a brother or a sister in Christ. Marriage provides no greater spiritual union between two people than my union with every woman in this church as a member in the church. Paul said, didn't we not have power to lead about a sister as well as the other apostles? Marriage doesn't create any spiritual union. That's a myth of marriage that I'm going to deal with hopefully this evening. Marriage is a practical relationship. Listen, we go to work with certain employers because they have positions available for us that meet our aptitudes, our skills. We like that company. It's growing. It's got opportunity. So we choose to go over and work with that company. We see a woman when we're single She has what we want. She has certain characteristics that we need to make us better. She's going to take good care of us so you enter into a practical relationship with a woman. It's no spiritual relationship. That is an error of Rome also. Do you know what it's called? Holy matrimony. A sacrament. Marriage is a sacrament. That when you're married in a Catholic church and the Mass is said, you enter into a spiritual relationship that can never be broken boy, there are so many ramifications from Rome on the subject of marriage. You wonder where these guys like Bill Gothard and others get their warped ideas on divorce. It's very plain. There is one mother of all abominations in the earth. Right. Marriage isn't a spiritual reunion. It's a practical relationship for the sexual benefit of the man, for companionship of the man. And when that's violated by adultery, end it! unless you can forgive her if you can't forgive her end it Joseph was a just man and he was going to put away Mary do you think Mary was probably a virtuous woman she came up pregnant and the Bible tells us he was going to put her away and the Bible tells us right in that same verse he was a just man the Bible allows divorce for adultery but if you believe in holy matrimony and you start thinking of marriage as some spiritual eternal union you get into deep trouble It's a practical relationship. One man picks another woman. Temperaments are decent. She looks good. She's available. She's about the same age. Now I'm talking about a little compatibility. You marry her. It's not this big deal of wondering, oh, is this the one that's written in the book of life for me? Oh, you wouldn't believe some women. There's only one man in all the world. Well, how do you find that one man? There's 2.6 billion men in this planet right now. Which one is it? The one you feel like getting married to. Go get married. Obviously, with the advice of parents, pastor, friends that I've covered in other sermons, marriage is a practical relationship. Any man, any woman in this congregation could be married and have a happy marriage. It is simply a practical relationship You are the one I will live the rest of my life with. I will work hard to support our children. You only will be my sexual partner. That's what marriage is. It's a practical relationship like going to work for another company. Don't add some spiritual element to it that will distort what marriage is all about. And women are most gullible for that. And they end up placing the physical, practical, sexual relationship down here, you know, in the dirt, as something bearable, as the necessary evil. Marriage is honorable in all, and do you know what it's talking about? It's talking about what's right here. Two shall become one flesh. A prostitute and a wife, sexually, are very comparable. What's the difference? Two shall become one. The great difference that marriage makes is you're committed to that woman and she's the only one and you are satisfied and content with her from now until death. But the actual use of the bed is the same between the two. God knew that. It's too bad that most Christians don't know that. And what I'm saying doesn't mean that a husband doesn't love his wife. That's all in the context of marriage. What is love again? It's that commitment to give to that one woman. To give loyalty. To give security. To give satisfaction. When a woman knows that her husband's satisfied with her, what a gratifying thing to receive from her husband. If he's comparing her all the time to playboy models, what a disastrous effect that's going to have on her. Look at First Corinthians chapter 7. You're there. We were at 6. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Here's the same apostle writing to another church regarding these matters. I want to read verses 1 through 5. Now concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. The wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband. And likewise also the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. Defraud ye not one the other, except it be with consent for a time, that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. And come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. In five verses, Paul is able to cover quite a bit. When he says in verse 1, It is good for a man not to touch a woman. That does not mean that you men shouldn't shake hands with the women in this church. Has nothing to do with that. That is a statement saying, don't get married. Concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me, and you can tell by the chapter what they wrote to him, all about the issues of marriage and divorce and remarriage. He says, don't get married. And he says it by saying, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Just stay away from them. He's going to repeat that about eight times through the seventh chapter. Because at this particular time in the Corinthian church, he was warning against marriage if they could contain themselves. It is good not to touch a woman. Just forget women. Don't worry about them. Don't get married to one if you can. Then he goes on in verse 2. Nevertheless, in contrast to that statement, let every, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife. To avoid fornication, we should get married. Therefore, the only people that are accepted from marriage are those that wouldn't have any desire for fornication in this particular context. If they can contain, great. If they burn, according to verse 9, then get married. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. I made a statement a couple of weeks ago, I believe, to the effect that when you take a single man, a single woman, they're infatuated with each other, and you give them extended periods of time alone, if they don't commit fornication, they are weird. It's just a law of nature. They've got problems if they don't commit fornication. God knew it, Paul knew it, and Paul taught it. The cure for fornication is not spirituality. The cure for fornication is getting married. Because that's what God created God put within the man a tremendous overdrive when it comes to sexual pleasure. And that is satisfied through marriage. And if you don't marry, like the priests of Rome, you end up with things like I put on the table a couple of years ago where 50% of their priests are practicing sodomites because they're trying to do things against nature. This passage is extremely important, and I'm going to get to it again and what we're covering on marriage in the evening services, but I want to go over it now because if I go over it again, repetition will mean it will last longer. Verse 2 is a context of fornication. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. The reason they're to get married is so to, to, to find in their partner what they would look for outside of the marriage where they would commit fornication. Getting married is to provide contentment sexually, satisfaction sexually, so there's no desire to look outside of marriage. That's that's as obvious as these lights. Verse 3. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. Due benevolence. Benevolence is... Kindness, gift, charity, service, care. Due benevolence. What is due benevolence? Here's how Pharisees read the verse. Let the husband render unto the wife whatever she will accept and is bearable for her as being due benevolence. And likewise also the wife render whatever she's able to put up with to the husband has nothing to do with that whatsoever. Due benevolence must be determined by the context of verse 2. What is verse 2? The husband is to provide for his wife whatever is necessary for her not to have any thoughts of adultery. The wife is to provide for her husband whatever is necessary so that he never has thoughts of adultery. That's what due benevolence is. Due for what purpose? Due to keep fornication from happening. Let the husband render unto the wife such sexual care that will keep her from fornication. And likewise, let the wife render unto the husband such sexual care that will keep him from committing fornication. That's the due benevolence. What benevolence or sexual care, that's what the word means here, what sexual care is due Whatever will keep that person content in marriage. That is a far-reaching statement. Men, why do women commit adultery? Because you don't have biceps like Arnold Schwarzenegger? Forget it. You don't know much about women. Because you're not six foot four? Forget it. Why do women commit adultery? Because they meet men who show them sensitivity, consideration, care, patience, kindness, communication, security that their husbands don't. I love 1 Corinthians 7, 3. And any woman who's thinking right now will love it too. You men owe your wives in the sexual relationship all the sensitivity, patience, care, kindness, security that a woman needs so that she would never even think of another man. You know, men think they're really great lovers by physical performance. That's a joke to a woman if the other is lacking. Men, take heed to 1 Corinthians 7.3. What does a man need in marriage? He needs more of the physical performance that women find it more difficult to engage in. And by husbands and wives rendering due benevolence as the apostle makes so plain here, what's due What's necessary for them to keep each other content within the relationship is what God expected and intended in the marriage relationship. Because men and women are very different when it comes to such relationship, there is a tremendous burden placed here on men and women in 1 Corinthians 7.3 to know what your spouse needs and to give them what they need. And a wife needs things different than what a man needs. Verse 4, The wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband. And likewise also the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. Some have taken that to mean all sorts of things. They really get lost in 1 Corinthians 7, 4. Some have thought that means that the husband's able to turn his wife's body on. Some have thought that the wife's able to turn her husband's body on. She's got power over it. That's not what it's talking about at all. It's talking about authority and control. The wife hath not authority nor control of her own body but the husband. The husband has the right, the authority, the control of his wife's body whenever, wherever, however, period. But Paul's always protecting the women and he says, the husband hath not power of his own body but the wife. The husband doesn't have the right to ever deny his wife The husband doesn't have the right to always do it his way. His wife has the right and the authority to demand things from her husband. That's pretty plain. and That's pretty powerful. And if you want to talk about a five-verse sexual manual that will make marriages happy, it's right here in 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 5. Incredibly powerful. When verse 3 came when I saw verse 3, the due benevolence in context with verse 2, it was incredibly powerful. You sit down and consider why a woman looks for another man outside of marriage. And it's for things that most men don't think about naturally. Sensitivity, patience, kindness, care, security. All those things that, oh, do I have to you know, flowers, romance. All the things that men sometimes have difficulty doing. A woman wants and needs that. Guess what 1 Corinthians 7, 3 does? It lays the burden on you men to give her that. And women, everything a man wants. Why do men go to prostitutes? Because they're aggressive. They're innovative. They're bold. That's why men go there because they'll do things their wives won't. They'll give them affection their wives won't. And what is Paul saying? Wives should give due benevolence to their husbands so their husbands will have no need nor interest in going. That's how we preserve ourselves from fornication. And you put those two together and have them functioning properly, you've got a wonderful marriage. Verse 5, defraud ye not one the other. Do you realize, since the wife has power of your body's men, and wives be and women, The husband has power of your bodies. If you ever deny your husband, whenever, wherever, whatever, or you deny your wives, you're defrauding a sister or a brother in Christ. Defraud ye not one the other. That is something you owe. That is something God expects to be done in marriage. And it's defrauding not to do it. Unless it be with consent for a time. Now, if the wife decides she wants a week of prayer and fasting and she doesn't want to have sex with her husband in the spirit of Exodus chapter 22, that's too bad. (laughs) How do we know it's too bad? Because it says consent. Except it be with consent for a time that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. He doesn't have any other reason. And come together again. I mean, after that certain time you've set aside for fasting and prayer, Paul's wise, if you can go without food, then it's probably a short enough period of time you can go without sex. Come together again as soon as it's over, lest Satan tempt you for your incontinency, because you'll be made vulnerable back to fornication again, because the due benevolence will be missing. Five great verses of wisdom on the sexual relationship in marriage. Look at 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Let's deal with the negative aspect. And I can do it in a couple of minutes. Because we ought to all know better on that one. We don't all know better on the positive aspect. Because we haven't been taught. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. I like that verse. Do you know where he sticks fornication? Right beside idolatry and sodomy. God doesn't consider it a better sin. It's a terrible sin. And those that do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Look at Revelation chapter 22. The book of the Revelation chapter 22. This is describing the holy city. For without, that is, on the outside of the gates of the holy city are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. If you engage in fornication, which is one of the chief weaknesses of men and women, I mean men in general. You are engaging in an activity that describes those outside of heaven. You are engaging in an activity that according to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is an unusual type of sin because you take the Spirit of God and make the Spirit of God one with some other fornicating whore. It's a different kind of a sin. Adultery is described in Proverbs chapter 6 as a sin that is without understanding. Messing up another man's life with his wife. And your life and your reputation because you'll never undo it when you commit adultery with another man's wife. The Bible makes very clear that we are not even to think about an evil relationship. The Bible says this, the thought of foolishness Is sin the thought of foolishness is sin. Look at Job chapter thirty-one. Job thirty-one and verse one. I've already read it, quoted it this morning. Job said, "I made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid?" Job was a perfect man and a righteous man, a man that feared God. What characterized that man when it came to his sexual habits, his sexual experience, his sexual relationship? It's described in verses 1 through 10. And he said, I've made a covenant. I won't even think upon a maid. I've made a covenant with mine eyes. I'm not going to look on another maid to lust after her. Look at Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 25. Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 25. Lust not after her beauty in thine heart, neither let her take thee. With her eyelids, women can be very attractive and very seductive, but if it's another man's wife or if you are married, it is not to be engaged in at all. Guard your hearts, brethren, keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Marriage is honorable in all it's a one the sexual relationship of marriage is a wonderful thing, one of God's greatest gifts to men, and there's nothing defiling about the bed but whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. Now, you can be a whoremonger by going, on out, going out and committing whoredom with someone, by committing fornication, by committing adultery. You're a whoremonger. You say, don't you have to do it with ten to be a whoremonger? No! You do it with one, you're a whoremonger. And if you'd ever read Ezekiel chapter 23, I believe it is, you'll find out you don't even have to have intercourse to be a whoremonger. That verse very plainly describes pressing a girl's breast. So many times young people ask, how far can I go before it's too far? And the parents say, well, I don't know, you'll know. You know, or most kids wouldn't dare ask their parents because they'd be so embarrassed. God's Word answers it. Ezekiel 23 and verse 3. Now that's the act. That's the act. That passage talks about pressing her breasts and bruising her tits in her virginity. If you want to get plain. What about the thought life? I hope to God that we are at a state in our lives as men and women that we're not ready to run out and nay after our neighbors' wives and lay in wait for husbands to disappear so that we can go in and lay with our neighbor's wife, like the Bible describes was so characteristic of Israel. I hope that we're not like Judah, that the moment we see a prostitute in this city, or a whore, or slut someplace, we're tempted to go commit the actual act. So let's leave the actual act. I hope that we're beyond that. Are you guarding your thought life, and your heart, and your eyes, as you should Jesus said whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart that word adultery proves that either she was married or you were married or you're both married a single man looking on a single woman lusting you bet lusting after her in his heart in the context of marriage has not sinned. relieve yourselves of an ungodly burden it's the only thing that will get you married You can't live with them and you can't live without them in some ways. That lust is just another word for desire. You know, the Bible says covet earnestly the best gifts, covet, desire, and lust are things that are right as long as they're godly objects. Remember the feasting that was to take place in Israel? Go to Jerusalem and buy whatsoever thy soul lusteth after. That doesn't mean a woman. I mean, please understand my use of that text at this moment. But at men, married men.